Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today is a grab bag of podcast friends and semi-regulars. First, we have our buddy, Fraser Brown. Hello. We also welcome back freelance writer, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And finally, returning for the first time since our record-setting EU4 fanboy discussion, <laughs> Sean Elysium Sands. Uh, hi, thanks. So, um... EU4, great game, right? Yeah, let's just <laughs> screw it. Let's just talk that again. That's, I have an agenda, and, and you're falling right into my trap. So, guys, I, I'm, what about... <laughs> I'm ready for EU4, and I want that code to show up in my mailbox. So I have an excuse. Oh. I, I started checking my uh, inbox, my, my PR filter, uh, for <laughs> common sense codes this week, <laughs> even though it was like it was like Calvin and the Beanie. The, the, the sugar bomb beanie. I, was, I knew intellectually there was no way that that code was going to be there. But we started talking about the common sense, common sense expansion to EU4 over the trip. And the mm-hmm. more I heard about it, the more I liked. So I just started being like, well, well, maybe maybe Troy sent me the code and I just I just forgot. Maybe it just, came just, while I was offline. Just missed it. Sure. No, it's not there. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm ready. My body is ready. I, 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 I want to be England. I ruined a night of uh, Mortal Kombat playing last night because I just spent the whole time talking about how cool the forts sound in Common Sense. <laughs> oh, they do, they do. Oh, I just like ripped out someone's it. spine out, and I'm like, wait, guys, they have a zone of control now. <laughs> I like the idea of leveling up governments and everything. And see, I, I don't have to worry about this being off topic or anything because listener stats indicate this is actually what people want to hear. Uh, so so we're all good. Uh, apparently, if we just talked about EU4 all day, every day, uh, we would be about... No, I, <laughs> be I do that, the... and nobody's following me around during the day. I keep waiting for like a cadre of people to just start conglomerating behind me as I'm like, you know, let's talk about forming Ching. That's got to be something that's time to do. <laughs> sort of like Socrates <laughs> in ancient Athens, where you're just sort of like wandering around musing on EU4, and you got all your little acolytes following you around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to this possibility. <laughs> uh, no, so so we were all in the UK uh, this, this past week, playing around with Hearts of Iron 4, which is the Paradox grand strategy game based around World War II. And a bit like uh, Paradox did for Europa Universalis 4 a couple years ago, uh, we were involved in a big multiplayer session where about 20 people came to the UK and everyone sort of played a different country. And um, the idea was it was going to show both the diversity of EU4 playing a variety of different powers. <laughs> Hearts of Iron 4. Oh boy. Uh, Whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll discuss. There, there was the plan and then there was the reality. Uh, but... Mm-hmm. So there were about 20 people in this game, and we were all connected, and it was sort of like, world, it was World War II, where everyone's, everyone's a power. And uh, so this is sort of riffing off our impressions of that, because the EU4 event was kind of a, a smash hit, and I think probably one of the best gaming events I've, I've ever been to. Uh, and this year, I think the results were a little more mixed. I felt people were a little more ambivalent by the end. Sean, you and I didn't get yeah. that much of a chance to talk during the event about the game itself, I don't think. Um, and, and I'm kind of curious, like, you know, first of all, you're you're a big EU4 guy, but outside of that, are, are you a big Paradox player? Like, does, does, does a game like Hearts of Iron even appeal to someone like you, who I think is sort of a, a, a classic Paradox fan? 
there, there's, there's the two sides of it. One, does it appeal to me? Absolutely. Two, have I ever been able to penetrate that particular candy-coated shell of Hearts of Iron? And the answer to that is no. I never. I, I wasn't a Hearts of Iron three player. Um, I really have only been, you know, kind of in the paradox sphere of comfort uh, since Crusader Kings two, um, which I think really began what has been with EU4 and what looks to be with Hearts of Iron 4 a, I don't want to call it a simplification, but maybe more of a streamlining of these complex ideas out of the sphere of really, really dialed in elements into something more like, you know, uh, digestible concepts. But with like Hearts of Iron 3 or Victoria 2 or these other great games out there no i actually haven't really played them and had even to this day you know haven't been able to get into a level of comfort with those so i'm i I mean i feel like i'm the target of what they're trying to do which is we want to go get strategy players who have you know perhaps not found a entry point yet and continue to collect those people because i feel like the design ethos behind Behind what's going on with Hearts of Iron 4 is the same thing This what went on with EU4 as well, which is we're going to make this more understandable and, and you know, not, not, less, not less strategic, not less challenging, not dumbed down, but digestible in a way that some of their older games just haven't been. And so my next question then is, how did you find uh, Hearts of Iron 4 and... You know, comparing it to EU4, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our listeners will be in a similar boat to you, um, where, you know, they're sort of paradox fans of recent vintage. Um, Is this kind of like the EU4 does World War II game, or is Hearts of Iron something different than that? It's different. And this is something we we actually talked about on, on, on our podcast this week, too, because the assumption is going to be, and the assumption I took into play of Hearts of Iron 4 was that, okay, because I know EU4, I'll be able to bring those same basic concepts in there and just approach it that way. And there's... There's elements of that, but it's not, I mean, it's not like going from Civilization 4 to Civilization 5, or more specifically, it's not like going from Civilization 5 to Beyond Earth, which is, okay, it's basically reskin the same game, because there's a fundamental difference in how you are building and seeking to accomplish the goals you have in front of you. EU4 is this sort of stretched out timeline. It's about developing your your economy, and, and where, you know, while it doesn't have sort of CK2's um, you know, personal level of I'm building a family, it, it's still, it, it feels similar enough to, you know, I'm really kind of moving the pieces in a big way. And Hearts of Iron 4 almost doesn't really want you to mess too much with your country. It's, you know, you are building a machine of war and you are putting the elements that need to be there in for that. But that's a fundamentally, to my mind, different way of thinking. So even though, you know, the layout may be similar where you go to look for your, your, your resources and your score points or whatever, that's all in places that I would have expected. And that's where the advantage of playing EU4 is for me. But actually, there were things that I, I was playing the game in ways that I would play EU4. And that was actually holding me back from really unlocking what Hearts of Iron actually wants me to do, which is, you know, manage my troop movements, manage my, uh, you know, at some point we can talk about this, manage my, you know, where my aircraft are and how they're going to provide cover and make sure I have the right amount of factories producing the right amount of equipment that I'm going to, you know, put in 
into the field. And those are all, to me, very, very different concepts and, and ones that I ultimately enjoyed, but it actually took me some time to break through my preconceived notions of what I thought I was going to be playing and play what Hearts of Iron 4 actually seems to be. Now, one of the things that I think we all, those of us who've been to the EU4 event, uh, which I guess on, the, on this podcast is just uh, me and you, Fraser, um, when we saw EU4 at that pre-launch event for the multiplayer event, that was a few months before launch, but that was, I would say, probably a finished game. Basically, and certainly by Paradox's old standards, it would have been a finished game. It made the wait for the the review code. I think we had to wait. What was it? Was it months? It was like was three it months. months. Or was it? Yeah, quite agonizing because it felt like we'd been playing a game that had already launched, and we had a few desync kind of issues. But there are so often kind of it's not a multiplayer game. You kind of expect a few multiplayer issues, but the actual game itself was, well, it was very much the same game that we kind of ended up playing uh, when it launched. Yeah, and I guess as we as we start to discuss what we actually saw with, with Hearts of Iron 4, um, how finished did, did this game seem to you? Like, like, how reflective of the final Hearts of Iron do you think this is going to be? Well, there were, there were whole features that hadn't really been implemented, mm -hmm. that actually had a huge impact on, on what we could do with our countries. Like the way, like, well, I mean, the focus of this game is war. Um, and there were, the only way you could really fight a war was a total war, um, completely dominating an opponent. There was no, I've got what I want, now I'm just gonna talk to my enemy and maybe we'll make a peace treaty. There was, it, it was kind of like, you always had to push forward past you know, what you really wanted to do. Um, and those are things that are coming in, apparently, where, like, you can have, you know, powers surrendering and things like that. There's no way to really do that, though, at the moment. Um, and that felt like a, a major feature, really. Yeah, this this game, to me, still felt nine months off. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I, the, all the the kind of base feels like it's there, but you know, the the more we unpacked it and even talked about, okay, you know, it felt like okay, you guys are really going to have to go back and build how you manage your transports and how you manage the fleet mechanics and how you manage actually setting up orders for your troops and orders for your uh, aircraft. We had ways to do it but they didn't feel like the finished way to do it it felt like okay we want to make sure the game actually works and here's how we'll kind of jury rig so you know it's nine button presses to get your units from you know one side of the english channel to the other uh just as an order and that it no it feels like the polishing phase the you know the the really actually delivering how you're going to conduct a war um it, it was sort of a sketch of that to me I felt like it was uh, just the meta game aspect to it just wasn't really there. Like, we were supposed to be doing World War II, but nothing we did actually ended up feeling like World War II at any level. Like, I think we played four games, and Germany got smashed in every single one of them. Mm -hmm. That's that's probably not supposed to happen. Um, so, and like... Uh, it, there was aspects of it that were actually simplified even further from the version we played at PDXCon a few months ago, like the uh, um, 
uh, sort of like national focus event things. Like if you're Germany and you're trying to get the Anschluss in the in the version we played a few months ago, you had to like put 20 infantry divisions on the border with Austria. And this, you just research a thing for 70 days and all of a sudden Austria is yours. Um, and I that never felt like that was the way it should be. That felt like it was a placeholder because they have 20 people coming to play it and they don't have 20 different things for 20 different countries. Yeah, that was an interesting and, and odd change between what we saw at Paradox Con in Sweden and then this this past event. Because yes, I I remember when the re- the way you unlocked sort of the historical choices, which we're all familiar with from like European Universalis, right? Like this is a familiar thing where certain countries have event trees and event scripts where pivotal events will unfold, and you'll have to pick A or B to sort of influence the course of history. And um, the way that worked in the build we saw in Sweden earlier this year was a good example is uh, for, in addition to the Anschluss uh, example, one of the early things that the Germans can do is improve their infrastructure uh, and get an infrastructure bonus across Germany. Right now, in the in the build they had, it was it was exactly what you said. It was just you you wait seventy days and magically like all your infrastructure improves. You just you just make that decision and then a timer starts and then eventually you get the bonus. The way it worked in uh, earlier this year in the earlier build is that Germany had to invest quite a bit of of time and effort into building up its infrastructure. Uh, and only after you'd done, you'd done some significant in infrastructure investment within Germany yourself using the standard game mechanics, then you got the second order like bonus that sort of reacted to what you'd done. Okay, well, you improved your infrastructure by five points across Germany, so here, have an extra five points, and, and now the Autobahn is complete. Congratulations. Which slowed the game down, and I suspect that might have been one reason why they moved away from that, because... Some of these things take a while to unfold and take a lot of a lot of investment from the player to make them happen. Uh, but at the same time, it also made it feel more like the game was asking me to do something and execute something before an event would trigger, uh, which also feels a little more reasonable. I think I would say it, the way this th- this felt really unmoored from the reality of the game world, right? That you're just sort of pressing these buttons and and stuff's happening. It was like a research tree instead of an action tree. Um, And, like, it would cause really weird things to happen where, like, I got Austria when I was in the middle of the World War. And, like, I don't think Austria would have joined Germany just, like, immediately and given them everything (laughs) if they were fighting France, Poland, and the UK all at the same time. I think they might have, like, had a little... Had a little a little stronger fight over that referendum or whatever. But I, I just took those troops and immediately started winning the war in Poland with them. I was just like, turn around, march north, and you got this. It was, uh, it didn't, it, it, yeah, there was like a total disconnect, or maybe not a total disconnect, but a very strong disconnect. And I don't, I still couldn't tell if that was a placeholder or not. You know, I, I feel like that, that kind of influenced the way that our three games played out as well, because, you know, I was, I was talking to the guys after and they really expected us to play one game over those two days. And because of this way of the, the game just sort of leaves you in these, in these scenarios of, okay, you've got this in order and you've got this tree going and all this. 
And what you're left with is the okay. Well, I guess I guess I'm supposed to go to war now, or maybe yeah. So let's let's get this thing started. There wasn't there wasn't this 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 sort of uh, bundle of things to do and keep you busy and keep you in that okay. I'm really in the development phase, and there's the tension back and forth of I'm not actually ready versus I need to keep you know kind of building up my industry and, and being active. Now, within a year or two, you're like, well, I guess I guess what I want to do now is just go fight the war. And so we had World War II essentially starting, you know, four or five years early in all of our games and ending rather quickly. The, I mean, the United States is the perfect example. I played played that uh, for the last game, and, and I know Johan also played it in the first game, and he was actively saying, you know, oh, you know, ramp up ramp up world tension. I can't do anything till world tension is there. And it felt to me like, no, what you should be doing right now is getting out of the Great Depression and spending a lot of time, you know, uh, you know, kind of having this sort of internal battle for, you know, are you going to be an isolationist country, and how are you going to rebuild after this massive economic failure and none of that none of that's really there at this point and it, it feels like there's a gap there of something to do because of the lack this is something that interests me about hearts of iron in general is that i think the other paradox games they walk this line between giving you a lot of freedom take a country move it in all these ahistorical directions but somehow the game remains historical or at least vaguely historical it remains historically plausible Historic. Pardon? Historic. Yeah, historish. exactly. Yeah, their their games are historic. Uh, their games are truthy. Um, but with Hearts of Iron, it ends up feeling like they're they're sort of caught between you're you're dealing with this really compressed time frame, right? There's there's only like so many different possibilities that you can sort of draw out from from certain key moments in World War II. Certain things could have broken differently. Different strategies could have been approached. But ultimately, you're dealing with this compressed time frame that handcuffs you in a lot of ways. And so the question is, if you, know, if you give players a ton of freedom, after if you, give, if you give them so much freedom, eventually it stops feeling like World War II at all, and then you haven't really made a World War II game. But if you sort of handcuff them to the historical track, and they can only make little detours within that, then you haven't you probably haven't made a very good paradox game and right now i feel like they're very much on the horns of that dilemma and i think the us is the perfect example the fact that in every one of these games uh, i don't think i don't think the us failed to show up in a war before 1938 no. 39 they were there every time yeah and which they, seems they absolutely were crazy. usually the tipping point like it was yep. whatever side the us was on just crushed everyone else as soon as they managed to get there so it, it was it was it was even bigger than that from a sort of strategic standpoint. I think there is a, 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 an issue with the way that the kind of, you had all this freedom still, I think, but you couldn't do much with it. For instance, as the Soviet Union in the second game we played, my goal was, was not to take a side or anything like that. It was to make everyone communist because communism's wonderful. Um, and you can kind of do that. You can actually start pouring like political points into making other countries a bit more communist. And then they're communist, but it hasn't really helped you out all that much. For instance, turning Australia communist didn't stop Australia joining the Allies in a war against me over Poland, um, despite the fact that I had made Australia communist and they, they were still tied into the Allied faction. Um, 
and so that really didn't have any real effect on the world itself. Um, so you've got this freedom, this freedom to make these decisions then that don't necessarily have a global impact in the way you'd expect them to, or at all. But this is sort of why I've never really gotten into the Hearts of Iron series, is I always sort of had the perspective that Paradox games were good for like these grand sweeping um, historical periods, and this was sort of an attempt to force that into a specific war and that wouldn't necessarily work and this didn't really disabuse me of that like i i think there is the potential for a good game here but i don't know that um i don't know that it told me that there are there are good enough game rules here that i'm going to like this more than eu4 yeah i i think i i was i was really high on this game after paradox con and now i'm a little more measured and I'm actually really glad. I, I'm hoping this game gets significantly delayed. It's it's it's, it's been interesting because I think at, at ParadoxCon a couple months ago they were talking about this game being in the near future, um, and now I think formally the release date's been pushed back to this fall maybe. Mm-hmm. But then I was talking to some of the Paradox people and they were like, "Well, really, you know, with the with the city skylines money, we don't need to release a damn thing." <laughs> Uh, so, you know, this one, <laughs> this one can sit until it's ready. Uh, and so the question then becomes, you know, what, what's it going to look like when it's ready? Um, but I, I think there's some, there, there's some interesting, there, there, there's some interesting efforts to sort of address some of these problems. And I think the, the world tension example is, is an interesting one because I don't think, enough, I can't think of another paradox game that has this conception of a global system. Maybe Victoria 2 does. Victoria 2 has crises. Um but this is this is another attempt to sort of to sort of constrain what states can do in Hearts of Iron until world tension reaches a certain global threshold and then new possibilities well, open up. I actually really like the world tension model because I I think it Talk makes this it. Okay, so the and, and I mentioned this a bit there as well. I really think of world tension as a resource, but it's a resource that one side builds to their own detriment and the other side spends. So the, the way it works is essentially as things are happening in the world, whether, you know, it's a small kind of war between uh, Japan and China or, you know, somebody, uh, you know, or, or Germany decides they're going to go after Luxembourg or something like that. World tension builds as uh, some percentage. And as these milestones are hit, the ally countries have options that were previous locked for them unlocked. And actually that makes sense to me because I think that, that, that makes sense in these very democratic countries where the act of building toward a war or building toward, uh, you know, a very sort of government centered ideology can only be forced by, you know, sort of dramatic actions worldwide. You know, the, the populace of these countries wouldn't be that interested in, you know, turning over their civilian factories to start generating planes or anything like that unless there was this sense of world tension. I actually really like that. But the the interplay be- between the two sides, it's not there yet, right? There, it, we're going to say this a lot. It's not there yet. But that mechanic as an idea and as a concept is in 
incredibly enticing to me because to accomplish things, the Axis powers will need to act, and those actions will generate tension. And they have to, you know, be balancing that the amount that they're essentially feeding to the allies, the amount of rope they're essentially giving, you know, giving up in the noose that is slowly going around their neck. That's that that would be a really cool sort of strategic thing to play with. And there was also a really cool tension as playing as the allies, particularly in that first game, um, where if, if we could capture what we were doing in that more often, because we were sitting here and every time the world tension would tick up by maybe 1% or 1.5%, we'd rush up there and kind of look, oh, what happened? Who who did what? Oh, somebody's fabricating, you know, or, or building a case for war against Poland. And that, you know, upped it slightly. It became this thing that we were almost sort of ravenous for and and that was you know that kept a lot of energy going in the very early game now once we unlocked that oh this is just a gameplay mechanic and it's not really balanced yet and it has you know a number of problems with it it became less interesting in the following games but again i think that's a go spend eight months with it go spend nine months with it come back with a you know with something that that makes me feel like i did in the first game and not like i did the last two games yeah, I I do like this notion that um, well, and, and world tension is also this like collective resource because one of the things that happened in the first game where I was Germany, and uh, I ended up misplaying Germany quite badly, but one of the things that was interesting is that the various aggressor nations, the people who are going to be the movers and shakers in the late '30s and taking the first steps, are all kind of drawing from this common pool of world peace. Right. And mm -hmm. they're all sort of disrupting it. And so I was sort of trying to fly below the radar and keep I, I was I was hoping at least theoretically that I would be able to keep the Western allies from really mobilizing. Because really my my big my 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 big whole idea was that we were going to do Russia first. Uh that we were going to work our way through uh the, the Balkans without ever triggering World War Two. And then we were just going to like stomp the Soviets. And I think that might've actually worked if, if not for a stupid thing with the event system anyway. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, it was already sort of falling apart because while Germany was being very passive and sort of building up, I had a huge industrial base and uh, I hadn't really thrown my weight around too much. Um, the Sudetenland had left alone. Uh, Italy was going berserk in the Balkans and Italy was just like, Italy was everywhere. They were, they were in Africa, they were in the Balkans uh, they were expanding right and left. And uh, Japan was being pretty aggressive too, I think. And the problem then is, what they're successfully doing is they're increasing the world tension to a point where the Western democracies are beginning to form the uh, the, the alliance they need to beat the, to beat the Axis. Uh, because as the as the tension ratchets up, people can join, sign on with, with a faction. And so a lot of these smaller neutrals who are, are unable to jump uh, jump the fence uh, when, when world tension is low because of what Italy was doing before Germany ever took a step pretty much the Western allies had been formed the, the late war coalition was in place before anything ever really happened in Europe and I, I kind of like this notion that your potential friends can also kind of screw you over simply by rocking the boat too much you know you're trying to be like you're, you're like everyone wants to sort of fly below the radar and sort of take what they can get but collectively they're all doing quite a good job of scaring the living hell out of the democracies 
The best part of that was when you had two people on both sides send troops to the Spanish Civil War. Oh, that God, was amazing. Italy. <laughs> Italy. It, it wasn't just Italy, though. There was another one. It I was, think, a, I think it it was, was like Italy and Japan both sent troops to the Republicans for some reason. <laughs> it was it was nuts. It was great. And, we, and uh, we're over there on the other side like – is there a plan for this? Are they trying to like drag this war out? Are they trying to like build experience? What are they trying to do? Uh, the it, thing is, apparently, it, it was a misclick. It makes it very difficult if you're playing, and I think this is just generally the entire game feels like that. If you're playing a minor power, mm-hmm. um, like the, in the first game, I was Argentina, and I couldn't do anything really without world tension because I I wanted to expand. I wanted to create South America to be this lovely place where all the axes could flee at the end of the war and just relax. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't do anything without world tension being raised. And if I was going to try and raise world tension myself, then everyone's like, no, nope, no, nope, keep it down because we don't want World War II to begin quite yet. So these minor powers are kind of left waiting for the larger powers to make the big decisions, which I guess is kind of accurate but it's it doesn't make for a very fun game if you are stuck in south america with very little to do um whereas the the bigger powers have loads of things that they can do and it's up to them if they want to to raise the the tension and kind of start world war ii early um and that yeah it just makes it a little bit unfortunate if you're stuck in argentina well this this is the other thing about that entire event is that this isn't like other paradox games it's not like eu4 Mm-hmm. Where there are so many different viable nations that you can start everyone off as, and everyone has enough agency that they can work together and create this really interesting play experience. Uh, I remember before this happened, uh, Fraser, like you and I were convinced there was no way they're going to put us all in one game. Yeah, because that would have been crazy. Happen. Yeah, yeah. Someone will end up playing Argentina or Australia, and <laughs> what are they going to do? They're... Well, on the other They're hand, they're going to dick around I, and convert Germany to communism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I thought it was kind of dumb and I thought it was kind of stupid, but then I saw in the second game, um, was it you and TJ, Sean, who started carving out a Baltic Empire? Yes, yes. So that way we had the we had the north the northern alliance of uh, of of Sweden, Finland, and uh, Norway, uh, and Denmark, and yeah, we just like you know what Latvia, Estonia. Come on back. Come on. And and but, it, 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 that was actually, for, for me, the most fun game. And we had very little sort of impact on the actual war that was going. In general, we weren't even paying attention to this fact that there was this big this big conflict between the powers, allied and Axis powers. It just didn't even register. It, th- that game was interesting because it was probably the most fun at a strategic level. Um and it was the most fun at a strategic level because people were playing it like EU4. So you had that northern group. You had the Axis, which was I was Germany in that one. It was me and Italy, basically. I think we got someone else in at the very end. And then the Allies, um, who were Poland, England, or the UK, France, and the US. And then you had this Balkan Empire of Turkey and um, Romania and Yugoslavia that started up that was doing really interesting things and there was the the sino-japanese pact of uh adam and uh Those yeah bastards. that was you <laughs> no Wasn't i was that... russia i was i was oh, their yeah, prey yeah, yeah. so <laughs> and then you also had russia basically trying to turn everyone communist and failing which was awesome <laughs> um 
So you had like a multipolar world instead of a bipolar world. And this multipolar world created a game that conceptually was interesting, but in practice, like the way that the wars ended with just like total destruction and people breaking through and then the peace treaties not working made it like impossible to continue for people who had actually started the war which was um germany and the allies so it was it was like yeah we did something interesting with the premise but the game couldn't support it did we get a single game that went into the 40s I think no, all I'm... of our games had ended by, like, 39. It, everyone yeah. was either, like, completely annihilated or supreme. It was usually allies supreme, to be honest. Yeah. Um, um, and I think there was there's this tension that goes back to, like, the very concept of the game, as you were talking about, Rob, which is, like, how much freedom can you allow? Like, Germany and Italy right now are hard-coded to be in a faction together. That, that means not only... Um, or do they have to be allies, but they can't join other factions. So I would have gladly joined with like the Northern Lights or whatever after the war ended, but Germany was still intact. But I couldn't, because I was stuck in the Axis forever. And the allies, um, like the U.S. can't not be with... I don't think the U.S. can declare war on like the U.K. and France. Like They can no. be in a different faction. but I don't think so. Um, so this ended up with the U.S. always being on their side, and... Well, I mean, even just, even just, even just uh, the UK and France always being together, like that could split apart theoretically with something. I don't know, but it felt like there was this tension between we had the freedom to start something, but we could never finish it in that like free way. Yeah, you know the when I think of a game like EU Four, you know, there's a lot of these things that that as we were saying are hard coded into history, so to speak, and it, it should be really difficult to break that but there is a way to break that and, you know if that you know contributes some national penalty you know or you really suddenly have to you know you're you're franklin roosevelt and you're journeying up joining up with the germans and that means you're going to have to have this huge political fight at home or have the you know some sort of maybe you know fracture within your state or whatever an event chain i don't know that makes sense. It shouldn't be easy to really just, you know, fly in the face of history, but it should, you know, that 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 handcuffing of it just isn't going to happen. It's just not possible. There's no way around it. Um, that does end up feeling a little confining, a little antithetical to the idea of what these games suggest, which is, you know, maybe you're Brazil and somehow uh, you're the major power in the world by the end of the world, you know, the, the World War II. I, I haven't been able to stop thinking that maybe my issue with it is that I I do so love CK2 and EU4 and I kind of wanted this to be that with World War 2 and it's not this is like this is a very different game mm -hmm. um it's not just a grand strategy it's a grand strategy war game um it's almost like got that hybrid in the way that CK2's kind of almost like an RPG um and it, it, and I think it requires a sort of focus that kind of meandering and creating all these very, very different histories. It doesn't really work. Which, which but I kind of still want them to try. Maybe I do too. Here's what I think. I think if the actual mechanics of managing the war get to mm -hmm. where I hope they are at some point, because that that's not there yet, right? I mean, mm. when when the war actually shows up, the fun of trying to manage your air bases and trying to manage your the, fleets. The fun. And 
the fun, <laughs> the the notable, <laughs> the fun, and even you know, I, I know uh, uh, Arumba was there, and he was playing Germany in the last game, and he was becoming extremely frustrated just because the mechanics of trying to move your troops around, particularly if you're fighting a multi-front war, just aren't in there yet. They're just not. It, it, it doesn't click quite yet, and so maybe, you know, one of the things I'm really hoping for is that they really do actually focus on the, okay, how do we make this a really, really cool war game? Um, because if they do that, then some of my other concerns start to be a lot less, because then, you know, if, if, the, if the point is to engage in these conflicts and really, really strategic about how you're managing your troops and how you're managing your supply and how you're managing your, your, your tactical bombers and your bombing runs and all that, and that's what takes up my time and my attention, then all these other things that I just take for granted as an EU4 fan start to go away. But those weren't really in there yet. They were, you know, it was it was sort of taped on as, okay, now once you have a war, you're going to try and sort of figure out how to, you know, actually get your troops to go in the same direction at the same time. So there was this, I remember when we were first shown it, when it was like a hands-off thing, and I think that was at the... Paradox Con in the US. In Miami, yeah. Um, in Miami. And there was talks of like the sort of really elaborate plans you could construct mm -hmm. um, for your fights, where it's it's like the, the, the issues where you're having to control and micromanage all these units and all these different fronts wouldn't matter because these plans would cover everything. And it was it sounded phenomenal, but it doesn't exist at the moment. Um, you're you're still you're painting lines and defense and stuff. So you're still kind of making plans, but the flat the plans aren't nearly as detailed as what I think Paradox would like to do, um, and hopefully still are planning to do, um, because the actual concept um, that they kind of described, you know, back in Miami, um, it, it sounds phenomenal, but it's just not 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 there yet at all, especially not when you're controlling your uh, armies. Yeah, I think that this points to another another tension within Hearts of Iron 4, which is that really, it's almost like there's two different games that just happen to live next to each other and eventually it segues from one to the other. The first game is a diplomatic and industrial design game, right? In, in, industrial Industrial management game, where you're just sort of slowly trying to lure people over to your side and figure out who your friends are going to be, figure out the lowest hanging fruit you can get to expand your power base. Blah, blah. Well, the, the Axis are doing this. The The Allies are are, are are sort of waiting around for world tension to get high enough so they can game the system and ruin my game. Uh, but <laughs> I don't remember it that way, Rob. Uh, I, I remember it differently. <laughs> but so everyone is, so everyone's sort of like built, like cranking out their military units and trying to figure out like, what am I going to research before this war starts? What am I going to emphasize when it comes time to fight uh what, what am i going to bring to the fight and then the war starts and immediately all of that kind of goes away that trade game you're playing kind of stops because world trade is completely disrupted your 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 menu of resources that are available to you gets much more limited especially if you're the allies um you can continue getting more technology but again because that resource problem it's going to be tough to roll that technology out and implement it um and so basically you go you go to war with the army you have and you hope that army is good enough. And at that point, it becomes a, 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 a grand strategic war game where you're commanding these huge fronts and you're, you're putting your, your military, you're converting all that military material you produced, you're converting all of that into combat units, putting them into armies, and then assigning those armies, you know, 
combat roles on the map and such. But it feels like there's a pretty hard discontinuity between those two things. At least that's how it felt to me, is, is that like, and that's probably how it, how it should be, but it so completely felt like everything you were doing in phase one stopped mattering because now it really came down, it was this really deterministic thing where what had you done in the first phase, now you were just going to put it into practice. Now you're just going to put it out there on the field and all that industry management stuff, uh, you, you can kind of forget about that. All that, that game you were playing earlier, that game's over now. Now we're on a different game. I, I think there's also a tension in sort of uh, player knowledge. Like, yep. since there's only this one event that has been, you know, run into the ground by basically every form of, you know, modern his, historical thing is like, we know what's going to happen here. Um, so there's this disconnect between like player knowledge of what should be happening and what is happening based on like what's in people's tech trees and um, the, what the country that you're supposed to be playing as would know. So like one of the things that we were doing as the allies was consistently right-clicking on you when you were germany rob in order to find out what you were researching so it's like as soon as you were researching like stuff in the east we were like all right let's start getting getting ready to you know see what we can help over there and there's this idea that um this first half of the game is all about like getting those historical dominoes into place and then instead of knocking over the dominoes you're just kind of smashing the table because you know that's what's supposed to happen yeah uh, it does and, feel. Sorry, go ahead, dude. Yeah, I was just going to say in the second game when we knew sort of how this worked, like I decided to do the opposite of Rob and just do like the really aggressive. I was Germany and do a really aggressive kind of quick German expansion. So the first thing I do was try to militarize the Rhineland, and then Germany, France, or um, the UK, France, Poland, and the US all declare war on me in 1936, and it's just sort of this ridiculous <laughs> thing where. These allied powers who should have a reason to want to stay out of the war have no reason to actually want to stay out of the war. So there's no there's a disconnect because they know they're going to have to fight Germany eventually because that's the premise of the game. So they want to start the war. And then we had and then the war itself was pretty cool. Like I was fighting a desperate two, three front war and winning most of the time until the Americans showed up. But um like the near total disconnect between this one strategic decision I made and this one strategic failure of the game system um, basically broke that eventually as soon as the Americans showed up. Uh, so it's, yeah, the, this like two part thing is, it's weird. Fraser, you had something a moment ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing that I kind of felt was, was very frustrating about the war is when, when the war begins, and especially if you are in a position like say I was with Russia, where I basically I only had kind of non-player allies, and they were all terrible. Like, how's Paraguay going to help me against like you know America when it's come over to Europe? It's it's not going to be able to send any forces. It's so small, um, and Mongolia as well. And I had so I had a war on two fronts, and when it started going poorly for me, that was kind of just it. It was a foregone conclusion that I was going to lose this war, I was going to be picked apart um, in the East and the West. Um, and there was no way for me to just go, okay, well then, I know that I've lost. Now I can start making decisions on how to repair. I've got to wait for like my enemies 
to carve off enough so that they can end the war. I can't just go in there and go, well, let's end it now. What do you want? Um, so you're kind of stuck in those positions just waiting. And I felt that in a lot of the games, I got into situations where I was doing absolutely nothing but waiting. In fact, in, in the final game that we played, I spent half of it reading a book because there was nothing I could do anymore. Um, I, was, uh, I was China. I'd been swallowed up by Japan and puppeted. Um, and because it takes a very, very long time for you to actually do anything when you're a weaker power like, like China was back then, and we only had a limited time to play, there was, n there was no kind of going forward for me. I was just watching as the rest of the map transformed. Um, and that I, I kind of worry that if you're anything other than an absolutely major power, that's going to happen. But even as, I mean, Russia, Soviet Union, is one of the most powerful factions in the it runs one of the most powerful factions in the game. And it can still happen where you're left with absolutely nothing to do. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that, to be honest. Which is, I mean, it's interesting because that's one of the great successes of EU4 to me. I've played mm -hmm. games where it absolutely feels like, oh, no, this is certainly the end of the game. Everything's ruined from here. And things even out and, you know, whatever. Now suddenly I'm not a threat to, and, and, you know, the eyes sort of turn away and all of a sudden realize, oh, no, actually, I can pick up the pieces, I can rebuild, I can reconstruct, and I can, you know, even play one of those games where maybe it takes 40 years, maybe it takes 70 years, but I not only build back to where I was, but go sort of enact revenge on this force that acted against me. And that's one of the beautiful things about 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 playing that game and 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 i don't i agree i don't feel like that that sort of that level of agency and ability to recover um exists right now or or, so, or is, is sort of i i don't i don't see it in the in the in the weaving yet right now so rob you've played previous hearts of iron games right uh, a very little bit but it's never been a favorite series of mine okay i was but, just wondering if you felt this tension and how it was resolved um so yeah i mean the the, the previous ones i played i think the, the previous because i played both i played both hearts of iron 2 and hearts of iron 3 and hearts of iron 2 felt a little bit more almost like a board game uh in some ways both in terms of presentation and the way it's sort of paced uh and then hearts of iron 3 is more of a contemporary of eu3s uh lots of sliders lots of uh lots of granularity uh, but it, but it feels a lot like this. I'd say Hearts of Iron Two felt a little less um, a little less detail obsessed and uh, a, a little more a, a a little more sort of events driven. Uh, st stuff would sort of happen and, and you sort of you sort of ride that. Uh, the the big change, of course, is that in the previous games they let you stockpile war material, uh, and they don't let you do that anymore. And I'm not sure they've actually solved that problem at all. Uh, so in the previous games, if you're Germany, you can stockpile tons of rubber, tons of oil, all the stuff you need to build your, your war machine after the Allies stop trading with you. And I don't know how historically accurate this is. I mean, obviously, there, there's always going to be strategic stockpiles of stuff. That's, that's, what, that's what great powers do. Um, and so as Germany, a big part of what you would be doing is you'd be using your export economy of finished goods to bring in tons and tons of raw materials and uh, money. And that stuff would then sustain you. When that, when that second phase kicked on, you had this reserve of strength to draw from that would let you continue onwards. Uh, and, and so it was very much less about 
purely about the buildup, right? It, it was actually it was actually more about like okay, the transition from peace to full on war was a little a little gentler in previous Hearts of Iron. Now I think for simplicity's sake, they're like okay, basically it's just it's just input output, right? You you trade civilian output, civilian factory output for the goods you you need to produce. Uh, produce military weapons so you need you need oil from abroad you need rubber and you're trading for that stuff but it doesn't it doesn't stack you you can't save any of it and so once the war starts immediately the tap is cut off entirely and um and i think that contributes to it uh contributes to some of the problems i think it's one of those things where it's a little easier in terms of accessibility because you don't have to deal with these ridiculous numbers which is a hallmark of the old hearts of iron games which is hearts of iron would have you thinking like oh my goodness i have like twenty thousand units of oil what am i going to do with it and at a certain point those numbers become meaningless here it's keeping it much more oh i need i need five units of oil every day to produce produce my air fleet I better go ask someone if they have five units of oil. That's great, but then the side effect of that is once you no longer have access to the, the world market, um, everything stops overnight. Germany can't produce anything, which is unless you a move forward and start conquering, though, because the, you immediately right. when you when you actually take over territory, the moment you've your soldiers have moved in there, it's yours. Those like you know, it, it, they don't have to surrender. You've just basically made that territory your own, and you get access to a lot. So, so for instance, um, I think it was Canada in one of the games became this huge superpower because uh, it had taken over a lot of the resources that Italy had had before. Um, and suddenly it was just churning out far more than it was able to do um, in, before the war. Um, just because it kept moving forward and swallowing up all this land. So I think it kind of pushes you to be very aggressive because that's the only way you're going to be able to deal with the fact that you know you you don't have access to the the world market anymore Uh, this is sort of one of my big questions going in when we had like the version that we played before um we had it for like the weekend before the event um was like what is the sort of strategic focus of this game like if you look at Crusader Kings, the strategic focus is loyalty. You're trying to subvert other people's loyalty. You're trying to build up your own. If you look at Europa Universalist, it's kind of a mix between um, coalitions and expansion. Um, it depends on how colonial, uh, how how much of a colonial power you are for the expansion. But you're always working the coalitions. So that's kind of the focus there. With this, I didn't really see what that might be. It was just like, here's the best sort of World War II thing we can do with the Paradox Engine. But I, I started seeing it with that um, that sort of resource hunt you're describing. So like, this is what Germany does in like, from like 1942 on, right? They are trying to hunt down and get Romanian oil or the oil you know, in the south of Russia. So that's that's what leads them to Stalingrad. So that stuff is in there, in the game, and it was totally unbalanced and nonsensical in this version. So it's like, instead of oil being the problem, it was steel. There was nowhere near enough steel in the game. So we're trying to hunt down steel, which leads to, like, Germany's, Germany potentially invading Luxembourg being a key moment in the strategic history of World War II. But I do like how it sort of... I, I agree that it, it kind of it ended up being very strange and you're not going what you historically expect to. Um, but I do like how it gives you these sorts of undefined goals. It's, it's all, you almost feel like you're making your own goals, even though really the game's pushing you in certain directions. 
Um, and it gives sort of purpose to these wars. There's there's a reason you're actually going there and beyond, oh, I'm just trying to do this because, say, that's what I think Germany would do. You've actually got a real mm. reason to go to these areas and be hyper-aggressive. And it's not just because, oh, Germany's super-aggressive. It's because you need these resources and that's the only way you're going to get them. Yeah, no, the, the, I'm saying that the, the idea is good. It's just mm-hmm, the, the implementation was not there. Yeah. But, like, I've played a bunch of World War II games, and I haven't ever really found one that pushes Germany to go to Stalingrad other than by, like, making Stalingrad a giant victory point. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, this, this is a good thing that it does. And, like, when I was playing Australia in the first game, um, I think Germany had managed to get the Netherlands on its side. And so I was taking over the Netherlands colonial possessions and like Borneo and Malaysia and uh, and on those uh, Southeast Asian islands. And like I was, you know, strategically picking which one of these islands has the resource that I need the most. So that's why I went to Borneo first. And that's cool. Like that mm-hmm. was a good, a good sort of way to make that at least moderately interesting. But um, it just doesn't, it feels like it's, kind of unbalanced there or it feels like it's really unbalanced there now and i'm worried that it might be just sort of a permanent imbalance in the future yeah that's clearly something they're they're talking about retuning i i liked definitely having those resources out there on the map like when i played japan and i'm looking to the south at the at the dutch colonies and uh and and french indochina and um you know the english colonies like there's all this ridiculous like there's rubber and there's oil and it's all the stuff the axis need and it's right there <laughs> and it's like you know it's kind of cool the way that like definitely shapes your policy right like you know eventually you need to smash and grab the 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 colonial empires uh because they're just sitting on too much stuff that you need um but in japan of course there's no there's no iron anywhere in the re- there's no steel anywhere in the region so they're still screwed but and it's it's worth repeating that you don't need to win the war to use that stuff, which I think is a really mm-hmm. good move yes. on their part. So, like, if you're Germany and you go into Russia and manage to get one of those things, you can start churning that stuff out immediately. I'll tell you something I started to worry about was I just had no sense for how combat really works. And, yeah. like, I mean, I definitely have a sense of it. Like, yeah, tanks seem like they'd be important. I'm sure tanks do something. <laughs> With a gun to my head, I could not actually tell you what a tank does. And this is partly, this is Paradox Games, right? Like, battles happen in the U4. I have a vague understanding. Like, look, there's shock value. That Like, the shock's going to matter, but it's going to change what its, what its value is based on where you are in, in history and tech. Blah, blah, blah. All that's All that's important. But, like, still, like, in terms of each phase of a battle house calculated i don't really know in hearts of iron 4 there's all this stuff that you're supposed to be taking into account and it's really important because well it seems like it should be important because there's all these t- research trees that determine what kind of army you're going to go to war with so the germans are going to have mo- maneuver warfare and blitzkrieg uh the french i'm sure probably do some sort of like trench warfare thing everyone's got these these different tech levels for army doctrine and research that are going to affect give different bonuses to their armies so you will have extra bonus to breakthrough value but less bonus to 
defense i don't know and this is the thing because here's the things you're looking at heart attack soft attack a breakthrough probably penetration who even knows but there's all these different little like these little factors that add up to a big i have no idea what the hell any of this means so i'm just going to build a tank because it seems like that's something hitler would do (laughs) (laughs) i had people asking me about my russian tanks because they could just do nothing about them and they're like did you make special tanks and i'm like i don't know (laughs) <laughs> it's a tank it said i could build it i built it and now it's killing a lot of people it's doing its job and it's like i've got some mountain soldiers well okay i'll put them in the mountains and well, yep they're doing quite well there i just can let it happen <laughs> and then there's a Roomba who's like yeah i've modified my strategic bombers so that they have all these things that they're flying across the entire north sea and um uh, I forgot yeah. there were planes in it for a while, and then someone's like, "Why are you not using your air well, force?" And I'm like, the, ah, "I don't know." That's because the air force uh, is a huge pain in the ass. That's why. Eventually, can, like... can we talk about the uh, air force interface for a bit? All right. Fuck what? Wait, was there one? That shit. That's not an oh interface. My oh my god! Did you find an interface? I never actually found <laughs> oh an interface god. that I could. Uh, was... There's it was a such code a that you have to put in to get them to do it. It's like the Konami code or something. <laughs> It was well, and this is the thing too is that so the game is trying to be very modern paradoxy, everything's sort of very simple, and you push buttons and you you click and drag things, blah blah blah. <laughs> but it turns out it's difficult to simplify World War II past a certain point because you're still dealing with absurd numbers of units, and so where 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 my spirit broke like an egg. Um, just, just shattered, just shattered my spirit was when my war accidentally began with France, which was upsetting, but then it was like, I needed to get my planes in the air and I've been in my buildup phase and I hadn't checked my air interface for a while. So I look at my reserves <laughs> and I open my reserves tab. Cause it's this little, it's this little menu. It's the left hand, it's left hand panel of your monitor. And there's this little reserves tab you, you open. It's this drop down. The drop down is like 20 full rotations of the mouse wheel to get to the bottom of it. And that's my that's my Air Force Reserve. There are literally thousands and thousands of aircraft sitting in storage. And then they all have to be dragged in groups of 100 <laughs> to airfields around Germany. But you can't but you have to draw them to the physical airfield on its location Which on is the a map. Tiny and then little you- button. And then you have to the assign them to an thing. air air uh, air region too, which is somewhere else. Yeah, which is in and it might place. be too far away. Yes. So there's always a problem as well. It maybe, might be too far away, and you can't get there. Maybe so, that air unit didn't can't do anything anymore. But how do I you know? I kind of wonder if there might be a way to sort that out. But when I saw the little red numbers and it's like too far away, I'm like, well, screw them then. They're not getting in this war. They could just sit over there. Yeah, I had, I had fighters. Like I was just getting, I was just bombers were just carpet bombing Germany. And I was like, I think I had fighters around there somewhere, but I don't know. They're probably doing something. They're probably busy. I don't want to bother them. Yeah. yeah. Not only do you have to put them in the airfield, you have to assign them to be active in that airfield, mm-hmm. and then choose yeah. what sort of activity they're going to undertake. Oh yeah. Do in they that want airfield. to like hunt down bombers or do something else and all that? And there's and I I like that you can kind of fine tune it that much, but Christ, it's a hassle. There's just so many different and and it's just a, a giant clusterfuck. It really is the interface. So it's, like, it's, it's, it's got to be temporary. 
It's got the be. two main buttons are called reassign all and assign all, and I could never figure out which one of those did what fuck <laughs> those, thing. Those were lies. Those were just <laughs> like, buttons of lies. They did nothing. They were just. Well, I, so I'm curious. Um, when the I mean, when this game comes out, do you think it will be familiar to what we just played at all? I, I hope not. I'm not. <laughs> I, I want to say. Here's the thing. I feel like I, I mean, you guys. I mean, maybe partly because you had you know some visibility to it before. This was my first time through with this game. Actually, sitting there and playing it, and on the way back, I felt like okay, that wasn't the game I want to play, but I saw the game I want to play inside of it. It it feels yeah. like yeah. it's in there. That's kind of fair. I would agree there. Um, I'm still kind of excited about what they could do, and I still think that the concept as they described it back when they first revealed it is you know quite good and brilliant actually um i'd like to play that game but that's not what we were playing uh, you're, it's well off i think you're right though sean i because i definitely saw glimpses of it i liked especially when different factions started forming because this is something mm-hmm. actually you can make a case mm-hmm. for there is no real reason why germany and japan have have to align themselves with each other there's no real reason why the Soviet Union has to align itself with the Allies, given that the only reason the Soviets ended up on the Allied side is because Hitler attacked before the mm-hmm. Soviets had a chance to do the same. So the Soviets ended up being this interesting wild card. And so there was this... There, in later games, I did see these interesting, like, you know, triple-axis type situations where you had the Allies, the Western Axis, and then you had, like, Japan kind of doing whatever... Um, and then you had like armed neutrals uh, forming their own forming their own factions, which actually gets really cool. Maybe a historical better game. I kind of like stuff like that. But where I really felt like the interface stuff aside, and there, there's a lot that has to be fixed there because like the click and drag, maneuvering arrows, and everything. Like, there's if a you ton. if you put that to any kind of like stress, it just fell the hell apart. It just it just didn't work. Did not work well at all. Hopefully that'll be fixed. But for me, what killed me is just there's no guidance as to what I'm supposed to be doing. Why did Germany lose the first war? Because I had a, a hundred divisions or so. And Thomas uh, Thomas Johansson uh, from Paradox uh, had warned me. He's like, I don't think you have enough units. So I added in my production queue like 12 more divisions just queuing up all the time. So I was just like churning out like tons of infantry divisions or felt like tons. But then I talked to, um, to another paradox guy at the, after the event, he's like, yeah, where, where you're supposed to be at that point in the game is you need over 200 divisions. That's, that's, that's the scale you need to be working on. But there's nothing in the game that tells me that there's, there's, there's no, there's no guidance. And the thing is in EU four, you get national missions, which give you some hint of what you're supposed to be doing. It gives you some hint of what's what your nation is capable of doing at that particular moment here. That was in that build that we played before. Yes. Because when, when you had to surround Austria with your soldiers, well, then there's a good chance that you have to make more. It's giving you reasons to build up your army because yes. you're not going to be able to do these missions. So we know that was in there. And I'm just like, did they actually completely take it out or did they just take it out for the purposes of this multiplayer preview? Yeah, but I, I think there needs to be some sort of guidance there about the scale you're operating at and what what you're supposed to be doing in this game. Because I, I think it hurts for the lack of that because the problem is I'm actually interested in playing more. I know I screwed up with Germany. I want to try it again. I want to do it differently. 
I want to do it differently with a better interface, uh, but I am interested in revisiting <laughs> that. The problem I run into is when I think about how I would feel if my first experiences with this game were just this trial and error. Because that was never that was never EU4 for me. EU4 was always like, well, hey, that didn't work out so well, but hey, why don't you why don't you patch up your relationship with your western with your western neighbor? That's a great thing to do right now, Tiger. Go out there. Get that royal marriage. Good job. Great. Yay. My first Crusader Kings 2 game, I had no idea how to build buildings. I did fine. It was mm-hmm. A perfectly good game. I was playing Transylvania. I expanded a little, like took the kingdom, lost the kingdom. Perfectly good game. This? No. No, no, no. Yeah, like this is, it's not good when you have, because I think Fraser, you and I both ended up in similar emotional places during this event. Just like sitting there, just nothing to do and just pissed. Just like, why am I here? Like I'm sitting here, like my. I felt bad because I felt like I would, on on my final game, I, I got myself into a position where well, I had no choice, basically. It's like um, China, Japan tries to puppet China, and then if you decline, they'll just end up going to war and defeating you and puppeting you. And so I was left in position with, with very little to do, and I just couldn't see how I could get out of it in the time we had left. And I, I was like, well, I could just, I've got the Neuromancer in my bag. Maybe <laughs> I'll just do that. And I kind of felt like a dick because there are still people playing and. And I'm just sitting there, but I'm just watching, I think it was TJ playing Japan, just like going through. I, I couldn't put up an, any real opposition. I was just slowing him down, and I kind of wanted to, it to end because I, I, I had no options. So I just kind of read this, and I'm like, I hope no one gets offended. <laughs> but I'm just going to read this book because I want to do something. That second game that we played, Rob, you were like stuck with Mexico and the Netherlands and some shit. And oh, you, were just like, you were just like sitting there. Are we starting a new game? Can we start a new game, Governor? Can we start a new game? Well, like, let's see, because the Netherlands was almost fun, um, but it proved not to be. Uh, partly because somebody, like, somebody took the Netherlands in the second day's session, uh, which wasn't supposed to happen, but I just felt like I did not care enough to argue the point. <laughs> um, so basically, because like, I had 14 divisions in a war that was already like involved like 500 divisions. Worth. What, what am I going to do? They're going to do nothing. Um, and then, like, Johan, who was playing Australia, tried to start some shit in the Pacific, but I ended up being forced to join the Allies just so my ship could sail down to the Pacific. Um, because, apparently, even if you have military access, you can't sail through other people's ports to... Your cruising range doesn't extend. It just didn't work. And so I was forced to join the Allies. Um, but the the other thing is this, as the smaller factions, you spend like just half the game researching technologies that are fifty years out of date. Like big part of my game is the Netherlands was maybe if we can crack the code of artillery, maybe if we can figure out what a tank is, we can take part in this war. And it's like I don't think that's really the limitation for a lot of these nations having a military. Like I don't think I don't think it's that like nobody knew like what is this artillery? What what's this what's this cannon thing? This doesn't this doesn't this doesn't look like it was in Napoleon's day. I don't know what this new thing is. It's the same for is. all minor nations because you are like actually as Argentina, one of the first things I had to research was World War 1 tanks. And I'm like, "Wait, why would I be why would I be researching that? Why not research modern tanks?" It's really st- it's like oh I want to make an assault rifle but first I'm going to have to make some muskets 
Um, it just it was weird. Yeah. This is something that actually I'm I'm a little curious to see if they change it. I did not feel like there were enough domestic politics that were playing yeah. a role here because like this is the thing, right? I totally agree. France was always kicking tons of ass in this game, as probably they should have historically, except for one problem. France in the 30s is this really fractious, listless, uncertain great power. Uh, and they are really not in a position to contest Germany because they just they just can't get their act together in a lot of ways. The the ministers are each other's throats. It's it's devolved in this little fiefdom within their fiefdoms within their departments. Uh, and here, like France was always like, all right, what what are we doing now? We're getting ready to kick some German ass. All right, everyone on board. So- so I was playing France in I think the last game we did and this like little domestic event pop up came up and it was like do you want to like some politicians are trying wanting to like remilitarize against Germany do you really want to engage in remilitarization or do you want to you know not do this and you know keep the keep things domestic and the benefit of remilitarizing was you know you like a bonus to production or whatever and the only thing that not remilitarizing did was lower your national unity score so it's like <laughs> what the fuck is this how is this a choice <laughs> or then and another th- example is in the first game i was australia i had nothing to do so i sent my decided to use my political power to encourage communism in Russia just because I thought that or not not Russia in Germany, in Germany because I thought that it was would funny fuck, yeah I thought it would <laughs> fuck with Rob maybe he'd get a little rebellion or something so like I did that you joined in I mm-hmm. think someone else did so we had three people we got it up to like 70% communist party <laughs> uh um, I remember that because you, yeah. I was Argentina and sending you fascism. I was like, "Hey, do you want to be more fascist? We've got that over here." Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we got it up to seventy percent, and then all of the Axis noticed, and they started turning it back to fascism. But it like nothing happened. Yeah. Right? We're sitting across from Johan, and Johan's like, "Well, it might cause a civil war." We're like, "That's cool. Let's cause a civil war." Seventy percent communist party. Versus Hitler. Well, and the funny thing is, my national unity never dropped, and that's why I didn't notice it was happening. <laughs> he he said the only thing, the only thing it did, is possible civil war, which didn't happen. Yeah, um, there's so, some of these big decisions in the Soviet Union, depending on what sort of national ideas you go down. So you kind of go through Stalin's like paranoia, and also like kind of cleaning up the ranks and getting yes. rid of like Trotskyites and stuff like that. And that was really cool because um, there are ones where it's like, well, this guy is married to this woman who once said something that was like vaguely not kind of towing the party line. So maybe Gotta we should go. kill him. And it's like, he's like a general in your army, but I'm like, I haven't assigned him any troops, so I'm going to kill this guy. And so that, that happened. And then it was, that was it though. And there was a few more like that, but the most that it like affected the Soviet Union was by I lost a couple of generals, uh, you know, and I had so bloody many of them. I was like, I, they all could have just merged into one. I didn't even notice their loss, but I did like that it was kind of coughing up these little um, kind of crises. Talking this over, I think one thing that could really help with this game is you just have to give up on the idea of making everything neatly systematized. 
because the truth is like some of these great powers you can create special rules for they're going to operate independently like regardless of world tension i just don't think we're, i don't think the united states can be getting involved in world war 1 before like 1940 i just don't see it happening like i don't think there's a there's a historical reality certainly not even if even when europe goes to war that that is looked at in the united states like well the europeans are back at it Good thing we're isolationist, and it's not like the U.S. sits up and is like, "Oh no, we must, we must get involved." I, I think there's there's room to create special rules for different countries, right? The, the sort of, and this this goes back to sort of that original problem of if you start doing that and start forcing back onto the historical track, then you've sort of killed the freedom. But I do think but what you what what you can do is create different starting options like one of the things yeah. i never actually played access and allies but one of the things that i always liked about that was like all these different starting points where you have these five major powers and there's two there's all sorts of two v three combinations that you can have with them so yeah. you could have like japan and russia against the world and that would be an interesting game at some level you could do that with this maybe they will i don't know but right now it looks like they're trying to have a sort of one size fits all thing so as we went down here like Let's go around. Let's go around the room and talk about like what do you, what do you, what do you want them to do with with Hearts of Iron Four from here? Like like what what like we all saw things we liked. What's what's the big thing you hope they'll they'll get at uh, before before they call this one done? Uh, what do you want to see implemented? What do you want to see changed? Uh, what's what's top of your list uh, when it comes to Hearts of Iron Four? So for me, I think it's going to be give me more to do and more sort of activity to in the early game give me a reason to not go to war give me you know if i'm the u.s give me that sort of uh, a, a gameplay system of rebuilding this country that has gone through this major situation and has a populace that doesn't want to get involved in european affairs if i'm france give me those things we we're talking about where i really have to fight to get us unified against the german threat you know i, I think everything right now is so intensely focused on the idea of this being a core war strategy game that the 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 way it's laid out and presented to you doesn't quite work with that because everything otherwise just points you to okay i guess go to war i mean all obviously do the you know get the get the interfaces right get the managing the troops right all that stuff probably is you know top of list from a mechanical perspective um but from just like what do I want out of it? Give me give me more of a sense of something I'm doing that isn't only uh, just get to war as quickly as possible. Um, I'd like the I'd like the events and the objectives to be more than window dressing. So I'd like, for instance, when I was playing the Soviets, when I'm kind of rooting out potential traitors, I would like people to get scared, and I would maybe like kind of party support to swing, and I I would like to have these internal concerns rather than just, I'll um, kill a few generals and then I'll get my military up to scratch and just kill everyone else. Um, I, I want to actually be worried about what's happening in my own country as, as much as uh, outside of it. And I also want to see the, the, the war game aspect focused on more, not just in terms of actually building an interface that feels like I can use it, rather than just slapping buttons and hoping for the best. <laughs> um, but actually, like, the kind of... It, it, I, I want them to also to decide: Is it going? Are we going to have fine-tuning, kind of fine control over these troops, or is it going to be all about these elaborate, massive plans? Because um, I'm happy with either of them, but I really think that 
it needs to have a focus. Um, I, I, I don't want to be micromanaging one moment and then doing these massive sweeping assaults with like 200 uh, units the next. I want to be able to kind of decide this is how I fight a war and this is how I'm going to keep doing it. I don't have to change my mindset entirely and then start fiddling with individual units because they're not doing what I've told them to do. Um, yeah, that, that's what I want. I'm not sure. This isn't really a what I want, but it's it kind of is. But I feel like they've made a World War One game, like the way that I conceive of what I can and can't do as a nation in Hearts of Iron is how I conceive of World War One. Um, so, like, first thing I do, churn out factories. Like, if I whoever has the most industrial production is going to have a huge advantage. It's exactly how i think of world war one then you like send your troops to these battle lines you're researching this technology that will give you brand new airplanes and stuff like i feel like the sort of rules that they've put together and also the, the diplomatic rules the rules they've put together have created a system that makes more sense for i like i feel like world war ii is this very special specific war that exists in part because of World War One, and the rules they've put together are rules that would work probably better for World War One than World War Two. So it's like they need to sort of resolve this tension between is this a grand strategy paradox game or is this a simulation of the war? Um, and like I don't think they're going to like redo the game and make it like a World War One and Two and Cold War game that you know makes more sense in the paradox thing. But that seems to be the sort of game they've made to me is a game where that would work better. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm with Fraser. I think the, the thing I need the most, and, and I think it goes a bit to your point as well, Rowan, is that I need some way of feeling like these World War II armies and I'm doing World War II type stuff with them. Um, if, if I'm using like Blitzkrieg tactics and like breaking through and like researching like, you know, Schwerpunkt doctrine and, and stuff like that, I need to have some sense of how that's going to affect the way I need to play my army. Because right now, the way I've talked about war all through this podcast is just pure like, look, how many divisions you got? And that's going to be how it goes. But if that's the case, then Germany's always screwed. Yeah. like Yeah, and that's kind of in there. Like... When you when you like make your battle plan, and then all of a sudden you see one of your little tank units actually manage to bash through and get to where it wants to go. So you have this one tank that you need to follow up with infantry, and the infantry is getting trapped. Like that's in there. There's just no real conception of how what I'm doing actually made that happen. Like if you research Blitzkrieg doctrine as the Germans, you get like a plus thirty percent to tank attack or whatever, but you don't really get the feeling that your tank is doing that. Right. Right. And and so, yeah, and it just turns into a weight of numbers thing and it doesn't really feel like an interesting World War II game, but that is per that perfectly describes a lot of World War I. Uh, so I, I think that is, that's probably what I want to see addressed the most is if you, if this, if the war game aspect of this is going to end up being a big selling point, um, then you, you need to make that feel a little more interesting to me. Uh, if you want to do EU4 does World War II and and have like tons of factions and, and goofy stuff happening, uh, then then you can you move more in that direction. But right now, I, I just really need to feel more like these are World War II armies, and I have to think like a World War II general. And right now, I'm not doing that. Um, so yeah, like you know, it's it, it's funny. Like there's a lot of things I, I I do like about this game. It looks really dramatic. Um, 
as much as we bash as much as we bash some of the interface um you know it's 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 comparing it's like hearts of iron 3 for instance it's it's massively uh improved and interpretable mm-hmm. uh in, in some important ways but I, I, i'm just i want the battle lines in every paradox game oh god yes mm-hmm. god yes <laughs> yes like the, they they look good they feel good when your troops actually use them correctly like yeah that's good stuff yeah and i, I love the idea of like you create war plans and then you hold and you let the clock run while your troops prepare those plans and research them. And, and, and then you have this attack bonus and you give the execute code and everyone just goes forward. And now there's bonuses for as long as the guys are on the plan. That stuff's really cool. I would, I would love to see that stuff elsewhere. Um, but, but yeah, right now I just, I just feel like this is not, you know, you compare it to where the rest of Paradox Dev Studios games are at right now, and Hearts of Iron Four is—it's just streets behind. Are you trying to make streets behind a thing, Rob? I mean, <laughs> I'm open to it. <laughs> uh, so I think that'll do it for our discussion of Hearts of Iron Four uh, for today. I'm, I'm sure at some point in the next year we will be discussing it again. And uh, hopefully a, a a very very revised version. I'm very curious to see how Paradox developed this from here, uh, because right now I feel even more so than I did back in Stockholm. I, I feel like they are right now in a process of changing and and rethinking what this game is even about. And mm-hmm. I am curious to see where they go from here. Uh, there is a lot of work left to be done, but there is no need to rush this uh, because you know just right now it just does not live up to the standards uh the the paradox have set for themselves and it's it's you know hearts of iron's always been a weird fit uh it's 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 so much more constrained so i'm very curious to see how they how they sort of you know square the circle with hearts of iron 4 as always this episode is produced by michael hermes and you can listen to the show on the idle thumbs network at idlethumbs.net uh we'll be back next week with some sort of topic i'm sure uh, but in the meantime, uh, thank you, Sean, Rowan, and Fraser, for spending your Sunday with me. Yeah, I'm just checking if my common sense code is in yet. Uh, what, what were you saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> never, never mind. Oh, look, it just showed up. <laughs> That's not really true. Click, click, I just, click. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.